Um, our students are amazing. They teach me so much. Um, and they try things and question things. And people talk a lot about generational differences or generational challenges and um, our, our students and generations that are coming, they're, they're gonna change things. And we need to, instead of um, pushing them down and saying they're a generation that doesn't know, pull them up and say, what can I learn from them along the way? Hey, my name is Lizzie. And my name is Julia. And we're both internal medicine residents. You're listening to Review of Systems, the podcast that explores the past, present, and future of medical education through conversations with experts and learners alike. As a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast may not be those of the hosts or the institutions that we work for. In today's episode, we talked to Dr. Shanta Zimmer, who is a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of Colorado. Um, But again, thanks so much for coming on. Usually we just like to start with kind of a broad question to get to know you a little bit and like your journey in medical education and to where you are now. Um, So as much as or as little as you'd like to share, just so us and our listeners can get to know you a little bit more. I think I I always wanted to be involved in medical education, but at some point during my medical school and residency time, the message about being a medical educator just wasn't a thing. Like, just like kind of like being a hospitalist wasn't a thing when I was mm-hmm. a medical student or a resident even. It just wasn't a thing. And so the clinician educator as a role and a path and a career path that you would aspire to wasn't really a thing. I went to Emory for medical school in Atlanta and um, I had a lot of awesome role models there. And I, the closest I could say to being motivated to be a clinician educator is to think, I want to be like them. I want to be like Dr. Schulman. I want to have patients' stories be the kinds of things that inspire medical students or residents. And then when I was a chief resident, I liked the idea that I was the person that the residents went to. And I also did a lot of teaching, but I, and I got to learn a lot during that time. I'm like, this is a great job in academic medicine where I get to learn things and um, teach things and support people during tough times. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure your chiefs are like that for you all as well. And I know that your program director is like that also is this person who supports you during the medical, the, the journey of becoming more of a physician, because you're already doctors, but even during that training period. Yeah. So then somewhere along the line, it also evolved to say what I would like to do with my job is be a person who thinks about preserving the pieces of the profession of medicine that we love. Um, Why all of us wrote those personal statements or what we love when we see a fantastic doctor or the respect um, of patients and their health. And I had heard a lot of people say things like, oh, I don't know if I would go into medicine again. Medicine's changing. It's not like it used to be. Um, And that just broke, would break my heart because I love being a doctor so much and being with patients and students and residents so much that I thought like, they just don't know. They're not getting it. And so how can we make sure that that message gets drowned out and that we focus on the excitement and the privilege and the gift and the real wonderful aspects um, of being a doctor? So I did my infectious disease fellowship at Emory. I actually um, became, I was involved. I also just, because 
Um, you couldn't be a clinician educator, especially if you went into a subspecialty at that time. Mm-hmm. It's totally not true now. Um, my division chief wanted me to be a researcher. So I went into the lab. I studied the toll-like receptor um, and uh, <laughs> MD2 protein. I, I mean, like really super nerdy. Yeah, very stuff. basic science. <laughs> basic science. I, um, you know, grew poly- lipopolysaccharide and studied oh my gosh. and all this kind of stuff, purified it. Um yeah, all kinds of. I went to a meeting called Toll. That was all the name of the meeting. Toll. <laughs> like international meeting with my poster on the plane going to oh Brazil to go to a meeting called Toll. Um, yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Super um, nerdy, but I also was. It, it just also sparked my curiosity. Well, I'm enjoying this. I'm learning stuff here. At the same time, if you looked at the things that I was doing, I was also like. Oh, mentoring medical students when they were wanting to do a research rotation or, oh, teaching clinical skills, volunteering to do the antibiotic lectures Mm -hmm. for the residency program. So doing those kinds of education things on the side that if you looked at my CV, you would have thought like, oh, well, that's recommended on the path to being a clinician educator. But at the time, I was actually like a hardcore basic science um, person. Um, I noticed, though, that the fellows didn't have the right type of protected time for their research and that we had all been doing very clinical things. And I felt like pretty good on my game as an infectious disease fellow by the time I'd done a year of, you know, intensive clinical work. But I was like kindergartner in the laboratory. So we didn't have any curriculum around that. So I knew that that aligned with what my boss wanted Mm -hmm. was to do something that built curriculum for fellows across the Department of Medicine to get back into the lab. Um, And I think that's a really important thing that I try to pay attention to is how do I align what I like to do with what the people around me, especially the people above me um, in that hierarchical system, want as their goals. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think especially early in your career, that's really important is to listen to what other people value and not change who you are to match that, but like figure out a way to align. So I developed a curriculum for um, fellows on how to go into the laboratory and at the same time, a career retreat for our ID fellows, including myself, to hear about different career paths like, oh, that person's an educator. Oh, that person's a basic scientist. Oh, that person's an expert in TB. How do you do, you know, hospital epidemiology? And so we started to have a retreat, which they've revised multiple, multiple times since that time. But a similar thing still exists there. And that was fun for me. And it was also, guess what? Education. Um, I also signed up to participate on all the little committees. I want to be on the curriculum committee. I want to be on the LCME committee. I want to be on the GME. Anytime a residency program was being evaluated by GME through a special review, which now I know all about them, I just was like, oh, sure, I'm happy to participate in that. And what that did is it gave me um, education myself about structures, rules, policies, those organizations like the ACGME, how they work, what the rules are, et cetera. Um, I also participated in a curriculum reform project at Emory when I was a fellow and then as a junior faculty member and got to participate in the launch of it um, and to learn about that process too. And also some good ideas, but also some of the things that they, how they pivot when things don't work. For example, I remember us saying like, let's build some blank space where we can fill it in later in case we forgot something. Um, And the joke I already always had was like, maybe we forgot to dissect the neck. And so what are we (laughs) going to catch the students up in case we make a big mistake? And I think that's another lesson is that when you're um, 
trying to do something really innovative and take risks, you want to plan for some of the failure. Because I think us and we in medicine often are pretty risk averse mm-hmm. because it matters to our patients. Yeah. And so I'm not saying you're risk averse in your personal life or anything, but I think in your in patient care, we don't want to mess things up. And I think as educators, a lot of times we feel risk averse too, because we don't want to hurt medical students or residents or miss a big part of their education. Yeah. Um, and so we sort of, I think in general, medical education curriculum makes incremental changes instead of big changes. Um, because people are afraid to take those types of risks. And I think one of the things that I've learned from experiences that I've had, and only because I'm reflecting on it with you now, realize it, is the ability to plan for risks Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. so that you can go like, okay, yeah, that was crappy. We don't want to do that that way again. But don't worry, we've built in this way to fix it or to not be risky all over the place at the same same time, right? So I think- that was the other thing that participating in that reform process helped me learn um, about, although I didn't even recognize it. Um, one big shift in my life came in um, 2009. So January of 2009, I moved to a new job at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'll just mm-hmm. say right off the bat, I didn't want to go. Um, okay. <laughs> I love the job I had. Um, I had a K award for my grant for my research. Um my husband got a really great opportunity. Fernando Holquin is my husband. He's a pulmonologist, mm-hmm. um, an asthma expert and an ICU doctor and a big researcher. And he had a really great opportunity to take this new job. And um, there are other podcasts about how that decision went down in terms of our relationship. <laughs> so I'll refer you to those um, <laughs> rather than rehashing that. We're still married. Um, it's all good. <laughs> kids. Um, but, but it was a hard time um, because it was a career decision that I wasn't necessarily on board with. And in retrospect was a really important uh, decision or ended up being a good thing for me mm-hmm. because what it did is it gave me a clean break from the toll receptor. I'm still <laughs> a fan of TLR4. Um, it gave me a clean break from that. And I had to recreate myself in the vision of an educator, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved to Pittsburgh and I didn't have um, a specific, I did have, I got, they had an opening for a, a job that was a master's, the director of the master's in translational research. Again, something that I probably wouldn't have said like, oh yeah, let me apply for that. Yeah. But the person who was leading the overall master's program needed somebody who knew what it was to do research and apply for things like K awards um, mm-hmm. and who also could design some curriculum. Yeah. So per our previous part of our conversation, I had already done some of that. So it actually was a good fit. What it gave me was some protected time. And because I was already able to do it, I could use a little bit of time to do that and more of the protected time to explore the other things I wanted to do in education. It was a little bit frustrating at first. And I, again, I tell people this in their careers, when you make a shift, you sometimes say like, ugh. How come they don't already know that I'm good at teaching this? Or why do I have to do physical diagnosis again? You know, but I signed up for all the things, small groups, physical diagnosis, mentoring, advising, and being on committees. And I always laugh that the committee that I got on that got me the job that I that I landed on as program director was I was on the outpatient uh, for the residency program. I was on the committee 
uh, for outpatient um, curriculum. I'm an inpatient subspecialist (laughs) (laughs) was previously doing transplant infectious diseases. Oh yeah. I put on (laughs) primary care curriculum design committee. (laughs) Um, So the, so the other thing is to say is do your best, whatever you're on. Right. Even if you're not interested in it. So I showed up, I tried to be prepared. I offered a different perspective and fairly soon after my time on that committee, um, the residency program director there was stepping down um, for some personal reasons and was staying at the university, but didn't want to be the PD anymore. And because I had been on this committee and I was also leading this other track, they said, would you do this job? <laughs> and, <here we> are. <laughs> yeah. and so all of a sudden, what seemed like all of a sudden to me, I had pivoted from like, oh, I don't have any job to, oh, I have this cool new job that I also thought that I wasn't going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think people will give you advice sometimes and other people may, and I, I'm not saying they're wrong. I just disagree with it, that you should pick if you're going to be a GME person or a UME person. Oh, I've heard um, that. Yep. <laughs> you hear that all the time. Well, do you like GME or do you like UME? You like leading people in the profession of medicine. That's what you like. Yeah. Like focusing on the creation of a physician or of a professional. And so what are the steps um, that get you there? I think it's much more important to understand, to have an area of expertise that you're interested in, like assessment or curriculum design or professional identity formation or clinical skills or clinical reasoning. And then you can do that across the continuum of education Mm -hmm, uh, or diversity, equity, inclusion, another passion area of interest for mine. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's different to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in the setting of a UME clinical space or GME clinical space or a faculty clinical space? There are a lot of similarities and overlaps. The way you teach your audience or way you engage them might be different understanding their baseline knowledge and experience will be different, but the content um, you can build on. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like influenza. You know, if I'm teaching a medical student about influenza, I have a different conversation than if I'm teaching a resident or an infectious disease fellow, or if I'm talking to a community audience about the flu vaccine, right? Yep. But as an mm-hmm. infectious disease doctor, I have some expertise in respiratory viruses that I can then translate to other areas. Um, and so it's not as much a matter of who you're teaching, but what you're teaching and what you're passionate about doing. There are others who say like, well, but if you're a program director, then you're GME and you think about the issues that um, affect GME. And that's true. While I was a residency program director, I thought about the issues a lot um, that affect GME. But I also cared about what my faculty were experiencing as teachers and what the students who were going to be graduating were thinking about coming to us because I yeah. played win in terms of the recruitment space as well. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to understand, be able to understand what the medical students were doing. So I was a residency program director at Pittsburgh until 2016, until I moved here to the University of Colorado. Um, I loved my program director job. If you had asked me before, was I a UME person or a GME person? I would have said UME and fellowship. I'm not going to do residence. <laughs> Everything uh, not GME. And no, no residence. Gosh, can't do residence. But I will tell you now, and I would say it, my one of my former residents is the program director there now. She just took over from one of my other former residents who's a program director there. Oh. Um, and I would say um, if 
somebody is taking care of me, some well-trained, awesome professional who has a heart of gold is caring for me when I'm dying. And they say, what did you, Dr. Simmer? And I say, oh, call me Shanta. What did you like? (laughs) Thank you for knowing that I was a physician once before. (laughs) What was your favorite job of the jobs you had? I think I will say being the residency program director was my favorite job. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate how much um, residents are still learning and they're working so hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when, if there's disengagement or a perceived lack of, um, you know, interest or something like that, it's all based on how hard they're working and what we're doing to create an environment for people to feel valued um, and not so exhausted yeah. I've been celebrating the things that they're doing. And I loved the million ways every day that my house staff went above and beyond. And it just made me extremely proud. And, and that piece about thinking about the future of medicine, just very reassured about where things were going. Yeah. Um, so I, I did have a problem that I was worried about while I was at Pittsburgh, which was diversity in the GME space. Mm-hmm. And um, John Riley, who's our current dean, at least for a little while longer, um, was the chair of the Department of Medicine when I was a residency program director. And he sponsored me to participate in a leadership program called ELAM. And the project that I did is called the Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine. It's for women, um, emerging women leaders. Um, he sponsored me to participate in that program. And also mentored me on a project on diversity in GME and learning about it and getting skills around that. And then um, when that role was open here for the associate dean back to the, you know, dean's office, which I hadn't thought that I was going to ever do, um, I applied for it and didn't even know for sure that I was going to want to do the particular job. Yeah. Um, but I, and I don't advocate job shopping if you're not serious. Um But for me, I learned a lot through the interview process. And I kept thinking like, wow, I like talking about this and I want to do more of this. And I have some ideas that I think might might work. And these people seem to be responding to those ideas. So maybe I could do this job. And I wouldn't say so much that that was imposter syndrome, like, oh, I can't apply to that job because I'm not going to be good enough. But I, I hadn't had an opportunity to talk through why or in what ways I would contribute in that space. Yeah. Um, and I think we can do that a lot more for one another. That's when you call a friend and you say like, Hey, can I run this by you? Or let me talk through this crazy idea that I have. Yes. And if they're a good friend, they say, <laughs> what are you kidding? You can't do that. Um, <laughs> or they might say, wow, you sound more passionate about this than any other thing I've heard you talk about in a long time. I think yeah. you give it a try. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good to hear those. People. We do that. We do that. Yes, yes. definitely. I <laughs> yeah. recently had a change of heart and what I was going to go into. And I definitely called Lizzie and I was like, Lizzie, what do I do? What do I um, do? What does this mean? <laughs> um, yeah. You can take some risks. It goes back to that yeah. risk taking space. Yeah. Uh, and I think the further along we get in our careers, sometimes risks seem more complicated, right? You might have mm-hmm. a partner or a family or parents that are ill or, or you like the city that you're living in, or you're afraid of moving, um, you're comfortable. And so getting outside of your comfort zone every once in a while is really, um, useful. Um, especially because we're so fortunate in medicine, you know, if things don't go well, I can always quote unquote, just 
be a doctor, which I already started by saying, <laughs> I love being a doctor. Yeah. yeah. So good news. My backup plan is pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, Definitely. I feel like from what you said, there's like 40,000 questions that I could ask in like 40,000 ways that I could take this conversation. But I know you talked a lot about take a risk. And pick <laughs> a risk. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you talked a lot about your history with curriculum development and how that was an early interest of yours and has maintained uh have been a maintained interest. So I was wondering, because we're familiar somewhat with the LIC model, that seems to have kind of been uh, one of your little babies when you got here to kind of bring to fruition. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the LIC model at the University of Colorado is and why you felt like this is a pretty big change. We talked about a lot of times in UME and GME, we make the little changes. Um, Like, why did this big change work? Yeah. So Point number one, not my baby. Oh, okay. (laughs) Jennifer Adams. Well, the whole curriculum reform is my baby. Jennifer Adams is our assistant dean of the clinical core. And she really has been a leader in LIC curriculum development across the country um, and even internationally um, based on work that she has done at Denver Health and then expanding it to a lot of different sites um, at the University of Colorado that were in place before I arrived here. Okay. Um, and so that was, I just want to give Jen all of that credit and also mm-hmm. spread a lot of credit for our curriculum reform across the entire Trek team. Because the way we, um, what I really like about the LAC and um, our decision to move to that model, which is has been complicated and logistically difficult. And also people (laughs) around the country have said, are you sure? Um, (laughs) Is that it is one of the most evidence-based decisions that we made in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So you all probably participated in a block curriculum where you did surgery and then medicine, then peds, then OB, then psych um, in a row. That's what I participated in. I loved being a medical student. I feel like I turned out to be a fairly good doctor from that model. And so (laughs) I had to be the one to say like, why are we changing? And yeah. one of the things that I think is sometimes missing in the conversation, especially with older physicians like myself and physicians who are even older than me, is that um, there was nothing wrong with the way we tra- trained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But medicine has changed in the way it's being delivered to patients. So when I was a medical student in a block curriculum, I was on with the same attending for 30 days in a row. The attending did not take a day off. Oh my God. The resident on the team, I think by at, at the, and when I was a medical student did not have the 80 hour work week. So did not take a, a day off. I, as a medical student got like a weekend day off. Um, and our pay, so that team structure was different. I was with that team at least a whole month. Um, all the team was the same. The second piece that was happening when I was caring for patients, and this is in the inpatient setting, Patients would stay for five days, 20 days, 30 days. It is so unusual for patients to be in the hospital for longer than a week that we talk about it now. We're yeah. like, oh my yeah. gosh, they've been here forever. Can you believe that patient's been here forever? Um, yeah. But it, uh, we would keep people a little extra because we just wanted to kind of see how things went. We don't do that now. We send them back to their outpatient setting or to their preceptor, to their um, PCP or we call them or things like that. And so I would have a lot of time with my patients because they'd be there in the hospital for a long time. Um, And then the other pieces that I basically rotated with my classmates. So 
a group of us were on medicine and then we went to surgery and then we went to peds. And so I knew them really well. And one of, you know, I know most of those folks. Um, and one of them, you know, was in my wedding and I was in hers. And it's because we had those late nights on surgery at the VA together, or yep. early morning, <laughs> however you want to call it. Right. Mm-hmm. So what the LA, so the way medicine is practiced now is that patients spend a lot more time in the outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. You all in clinic take care of really sick people in clinic that in my residency clinic, I would have been like, Oof, admit, <laughs> you <laughs> know, this person can't, you know, go home. And so you've learned to, uh, to handle a lot more acuity and complexity in the outpatient setting than prior um, trainees used to do. The other um, is that we are, um, we're thinking about health systems practice and how to um, think about the whole system, like what happens when they go home? How do we connect them um, to their follow-up visit? What about their outpatient antibiotics? And if you move from system to system, from the VA to the children's hospital to the university hospital, as many medical schools have those different sites, you as a student really never learn the system. And therefore, you can't um, navigate it in the best possible way. And it also makes you really uncomfortable, right? When you move from the VA to where I was at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, both great teaching sites, but totally different. The first week I was there, I would be like in panic mode, like not knowing how to write orders or the prescriptions or, you know, manage the system. So the LIC model recreates a lot of the things that many of us loved about our old traditional way in older medicine to provide a longitudinal relationship with your classmates. So we have our students in groups of, you know, 12 to 15 at one particular site. So they get that continuity with their classmates. It also gives them a longitudinal relationship with their preceptor because they do more outpatient medicine than previously. And that's because healthcare has changed and they need to know more outpatient medicine. Um, But they see the same preceptors every week in each of the specialties, um, except during their immersions. And that person gets to know them along the way, just like Joyce Doyle, who was my faculty member for that whole entire month in November, when I was a third year medical student, had me to her house for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Like they get to know me. And so more students get those role models Mm -hmm. in their lives which you heard me say ties to my why of medical education in the first place, which is to preserve those components of the profession of medicine that I think are so important and that are not lost. And so students get multiple role models that they're with for a long period of time. They also, in a longitudinal model, have an opportunity to follow a panel of patients. Um, and so while I followed a panel of patients because they were in the hospital forever um, or might show up again later on my OB rotation or my surgery rotation, we more deliberately say, let's see what that watching what happens to patients. You need to know what happens when you see, as I did as an intern, someone present with superior vena, superior vena cava syndrome with a small cell lung cancer and hyponatremia in the hospital. She stayed in the hospital for two months when I was an intern. Mm. Um, and then I saw her again in January. But what our medical students then get to say is like, oh, she was in the ED. She gets admitted. Radiation gets set up. She goes home. But the student yeah. then wouldn't have seen her again. But it gets to follow her to those appointments, see some of the complications, and ultimately be present if palliative care is where we end up going. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think... That's a basic explanation of the model. Instead of learning in blocks, you learn in an integrated fashion that Mm -hmm. preserves longitudinal relationships with students themselves, their peers, um, their patients, 
and their preceptors. And that fourth piece that we don't talk about as much because it's harder sometimes to nail down is the potential for a longitudinal embedding within a healthcare system. So you can imagine if you're the student and you stayed at UC Health at a university hospital for the entire year, except for your peds time, maybe, you would know the hospital inside and out. The comfort that you have coming in the morning is is pretty good every day. Once you learn um, the system, you get to know the nurses, you know where the lab is. You then start saying like, huh, this should be done a little bit differently. I can actually contribute to the systems-based improvements of this particular group. Um, And I, I would say that's something that we're still you know, striving to achieve in all areas of the LICs. We do it really well in some some of them um, and better and, and still can make it better in other areas. But those all seem like wins. And when I said that it was evidence-based, the way that we did our curriculum reform is that we had some visioning retreats and then we divided up into subcommittees. And one of the subcommittees was to look at the clinical curriculum, education in the clinical space, in the clerkship phase. And a lot of medical schools don't change that very much when they yeah. tweak their curriculum. They just like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we should have more um, health system science. Oh, yeah, we should include some stuff about, you know, anti-racist uh, training. You know, we should include some of that things in there. But or we should switch to have TBLs as their lectures instead of having the lectures to redo it the whole way that we did, I think, is pretty unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. could be risky. Um, And so going back to how did I build in the idea that we weren't going to, that we were going to have space for this risky adventure. Um, First, I think that while logistically, this was one of the more difficult things to do, it was one of the least risky things because of the evidence. Mm -hmm. So we had a subcommittee that was looking at this. They reviewed the literature. Um, They talked about it. And at the end of their time, eight months or so of meeting to talk about what the best model would be. They kind of um, sheepishly at first and then extremely confidently said, we should go to all LIC because the outcomes are the best. Mm. Literature, not just from our institution, but other institutions and actually internationally um, supports that the LIC model in the current healthcare system um, that we practice in creates doctors who are more medical students who emerge as being more compassionate who um, make a difference in patient care, who can learn health system science, who preceptors like to teach better than other medical, and let's be real, faculty engagement is important, Um, (laughs) and who emerge able um, able to jump into new situations and to be, to be leaders in that space. And the things that um, you would worry about when you were designing a radically new curriculum or making a big leap like that would be mm-hmm. to say how let's make sure we don't hurt people right mm-hmm. do they learn what they need to learn so how might you check that how do they do on step two great how do they do on their shelf exams better how do they do you know in their graduation and their match fantastic so knowing that all of those things fall into place um but that some of these relationship things um, and leadership things might be better it seemed like a no-brainer to me um, when they came forward to say, this is our recommendation. Um, we think you should do this. Um, that was, you can also say like, yeah, but can we, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. How do we do how now? Okay. Now, how do we, yeah. But I think once they made that, um, comment that, that this was the best way to go, um, it just became 
the logistics part is is really an operational thing. Um, and the other thing that I also love about CU and that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do at the University of Pittsburgh, say I had the same role at Pittsburgh and we were doing this, is that we have several LICs here. We had our rural program had a longitudinally mm-hmm. integrated clerkship. Denver mm-hmm. Health did. Colorado Springs did. Um, we were opening a new branch campus in Fort Collins that did. The VA had a variation on that model. So we had lots of experience with our own students. And it wasn't just the evidence from other institutions, but evidence from our students that this was successful. So that made me less afraid um, yeah. <laughs> about it. Um, yeah. Well, we've loved working with all of our medical students and actually someone that we're bringing into our podcast, shout out Elizabeth um, is now an intern here who was like an AI when I was on as like my first senior in rotation. So I feel like I formed really awesome relationships with the med students from CU and they all do an amazing job. Um, I love to hear that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of within that, I mean, it's, is this the third year that you've been doing the LIC or second year? We're in our second year of all LIC right now. Last Got year, it. the new class entered in um, fall of 2021. Okay. And that's the other big change that we made is that a lot of medical schools have truncated their first year of their first few years, their pre-clerkship curriculum. We went all the way down to 12 months. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And not 15 months or 18 months, but 12 months. And so they actually start in their LICs um, on their during their second year. Yes. Um, which then gives us a lot more space for the individualized component of the curriculum that we think is so important to the learners today. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. And obviously, uh, time will tell, you know, it's kind of new. Um, but here, like, what have you anecdotally been hearing or what have the students been saying about the change? Um Kind of how has it been going? I'm sure that the students I've talked to seem to really love it. Um, But from your perspective, also, have you seen like big differences that you've been like, oh, wow, that is a change that we've seen in students. And that is cool. Yeah, I think we're still, I mean, we're, we collect so much data. Again, I really like the evidence-based approach that our team takes and the, um, we survey the students to death. We survey the uh, mm-hmm. faculty. We look at board scores. We look at shelf exams and all those things. I would say all of our early indicators. Um, and, and we just had a presentation by Ty Loxweiser, who's our um, Dean for the assessment evaluation and outcomes committee, looking at these data and presenting kind of preliminary reports, everything. I'm almost afraid to say it on recording. <laughs> Everything is looking better. Like, awesome. I was expecting something to not be better. Yeah. But right yeah. now, everything is looking better, including a survey of the faculty asking whether or not um, the students were more or less prepared or the same prepared for their clerkships when they came from our shortened first year curriculum. And more than 50% of the faculty said they were more prepared. Oh, wow. Which Considering that we all, we shortened the curriculum and put them in as second years instead of as third years, that's a big difference um, and really nice to hear. I think you have to support students through the early parts of the tra- change mm-hmm. because at the very beginning, it's overwhelming. Imagine going to surgery one day and peds the next day and OB the next day. I would be like spaz. Um, and so our, our students do get a little spazzy during that time, but 
in a few months, they settle down, they have a rhythm and they actually contribute to patient care. Um, they're doing really well on their um, exams. They're doing their, so their medical knowledge seems to be good. What, what has made me the most excited is when I go, so each of the LICs also has a theme um, that's sort of like a, a minor. So I always tell students, being a coming a great doctor is your major. One of these other areas could be your minor. So like a health equity minor or a patient safety and quality minor or a humanities minor, we're going to develop one with an oncology sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a cure, an inquiry, the minor we have is inquiry, which is all of our MD-PhD students who come back go into this inquiry one. One of the themes of our curriculum is, is our themes are leadership, curiosity, commitment. And that one curiosity is one that's hardest to measure. Um, yeah. How do you measure if people are curious? What, what demonstrates that um, besides papers? And so I got to shop around to look at the end of the year presentations for some of these students. I wish I made it to all of them, but I didn't make it to all, but I did make it to some form of all the categories. and to hear them talk about their ideas to change medicine or to take care of patients or to invent new systems of doing things. It was just so inspiring. And the idea that they had kind of the bandwidth while they were learning medicine and doing such a great job to focus on these extra things also made me really excited um, because I, I do think that's what translates to a lifelong of happiness um, in your career is the ability to add something that's particularly interesting to you. Um, and aligning, like we talked about earlier, if their if their boss, quote unquote, their boss was their LIC director and the theme was inquiry, and they were curious about something that wasn't a research project, but they were really curious anyway, and they matched that with the goal of the LIC director, then they've learned how to find their passion and align it with the people who are working around them and above them sometimes. So all that seems really cool. I really like the minor piece. I definitely never had anything like that in my med school training. Um, Or yeah. Uh, So kind of like peripherally related to that though, kind of tying in the curriculum development with like these minors. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of go through some things that you feel like besides the basic science and the like clinical medicine piece of medical training with specifically more UME, what are some other like more intangible things that you think are super important to include in medical school curriculum? Um, This is kind of in the forefront of my brain because I have been working with some med students at the VA and they're senior and we had a situation that like required some upstander training. And they were like, so amazing. They like talked about the microaggression afterwards. They like were great about the upstander, like within the moment. And I was just so impressed because I was like, that is not something that I felt prepared to do, especially as a med student. And honestly, like halfway into my second year of residency, I'm like still kind of developing that. So I'm just kind of wondering if there's some things that you think we need to be teaching that aren't these like basic science, all of that stuff um, before people get to residency. Yeah. Thanks for that question. And for that example, um, I always talk about this. I used to talk about it with my residents and my husband is, is Mexican and he's, he sometimes calls me la mama gallina, which is just the proud mother hen. That I, <laughs> when you say stuff like that and you say, and my medical students responded really well to a microaggression, like my feathers like start fluffing off my chest because I'm so <laughs> proud of them for doing that. And also I'm so proud of the team that intentionally put 
upstander training, implicit bias, um, social determinants of health into the curriculum leading up into the LICs and then continuing to grow it. Um, and that's also for me been a happy intersection of my passion and interest in DEI and also the education role that I have. Shout out to Rita Lee and Kristen Ferfari, who lead the component of our curriculum that's called health system science. Mm -hmm. um, and the, our special name for it here is health and society. Lots of medical schools now have health system science, but their focus is often, and Rita and Kristen just told me this from the AAMC meeting, which is our big education meeting they were just at, um, that a lot of schools are doing health system science through the lens of the hospital or the clinic, which is patient safety, important things, patient safety, uh, quality, um, operations, understanding healthcare systems, insurance, finance, all of those kinds of um, things within the system. We made a conscious decision to say the system that we care about is the life of the patient. And most patients, and I do this in my curriculum spiel, most patients prefer not to be within our health system. Yeah. There's a few who might like to be with us, right? Yeah, there's <laughs> a, a couple. Few, a few might like to be with us, but most people, don't, you know, maybe they like going to their primary care doctor, but for the most part, they want to be at work. They want to be at home. They want to be at school. They want to be doing things in their communities without us. Mm -hmm. Our job is actually to make them healthy, although we spend our most time with patients when they're not healthy, right? Yeah. Um, and so trying to figure out what does the system look like that the patient is a person, as a person instead of a patient, lives in. So we do health system science through the lens of the community. Um, we have a required service learning component of our curriculum, just pausing for a restructure right now. Again, um, things that didn't go well, instead of saying like, we're a failure, which is hard for the team because everybody, we're all type A, everybody wants to win yeah. and do it well. Yep. Just like, hey, could we do this better? Have we hurt anyone? Uh, what can we do here? So we have a required service learning component. They have a curriculum during the first year every Wednesday, which is um, health and society taught by a longitudinal compass guide, who's their kind of coach. And so to make a safe space to have these difficult conversations. It also, um, the compass program is our guide program that um, supports the students and they focus on professional identity formation, which includes things like, you know, what are the things that you bring to the, to the table um, positively and negatively as you develop into being a physician? And the upstander training, I think, has been a really important piece, not just for um, the students, but also for their patients, um, because sometimes patients Sometimes the need for upstanding comes from a response from a patient. And we're, we have a really hard time saying, my, I want to direct my patient to do something differently or say something differently. And I think in medicine and big, big medicine and in your residencies, you probably take a lot um, because you're not sure how to respond. Yep. But that those um, slights or microaggressions or unkindnesses even that come from patients in their vulnerable place can lead to chronic problems with you, like burnout or feeling like you don't belong or you're not in the right profession. And so I think we do need to take care of ourselves by learning how to respond to those. In the business space, you know, they'll say like, if a patient says something disrespectful, if a customer says something disrespectful, the business folks have an easy answer about how to not serve them, right? 
you can get out. If you're going to be yeah. that way, leave. In medicine, we have a different relationship with our yes. customers, right? Yes. Because they're not customers. There are there are patients and we care about them and we have mm-hmm. a unique ability to see where they're coming from and also a responsibility to care for them no matter what. So I think it's a tough thing to learn how to navigate that, those competing things. I want to take care of myself, but I'm called to take care of this person and I'm called to take care of this person. Um, so I think that's an important skill. I think also health system science is important because um, if you have somebody who um needs chemotherapy, for example, and they can't, they don't have access to it, then, and you can't figure out a way to get them access, then they're not going to get the treatment that they need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If there's a medication that they, you think they need to take, but it makes them sick when they go home and they don't have a way to tell you, you know, that we, we all know this, right. Medicine that you prescribe that doesn't go in their mouth doesn't really do very much to help them. Um, And so just being much more explicit, I think, in earlier phases of medical school about the fact that that happens. I think you learn that in residency, even Mm -hmm. if you didn't learn it explicitly. Um, And as long as you're compassionate and we take care of good care of you as a person, um, then you'll be able to to learn those things along the way. Um, But our students are ahead of the, the game, um, really ahead of the game. I had a recent graduate tell me, oh, I was on you know, this surgical subspecialty rotation at this hospital and the residents didn't know that they could get this for free, but I knew. So we got it for our patient for free and everybody was really happy. It's like, great. (laughs) You know, things like that, how to use interpreters, how to recognize patients as their whole identity. Um, I think those are really important things. Um, And when I reflect back to being a third year medical student, I still have my patient cards around here. Little things like acknowledging the identity of the patient in your HPI or your presentation. So calling each other and saying like, you know, signing out, my dad's been a patient at UC Health recently or UCH recently. And I imagine the interns calling each other when they're doing handoff from nighttime to daytime and saying, oh, you know, this is, you know, Shanta Zimmer's dad. Um, He's a retired physician. How important that is to me as a caregiver and a family member to know that my team is thinking about my dad as somebody other than just the guy who, you know, got wacky when he had too much levodopa, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. And I think we all can think about that when we have loved ones in that situation, but just like any change that you want to make, if you make it, um, if you systemize it and say, we always put this in the opening sentence, we always put their occupation down, retired security officer, you know, veteran from, you know, Vietnam, um, prior school teacher, you know, if we always put something like that in there, we begin to notice the times where we slip and don't. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to say from a critical perspective of like, oh, you're such a bad doctor because you didn't ask what they did um, or remember it when you were making your presentation. But when I go to write consult notes now, usually at night. Um, and I'm writing the HPI and I say, Oh, this is a 37 year old. And I don't remember, or I didn't ask exactly what they do. And I can't put a little phrase there that says, you know, aspiring business leader or something like that. Um, I feel bad. And it reminds me to go tomorrow and, and look again and make sure that I learned them in the context 
of their lives instead of just the context of our diseases. Um, and I think all of us can do little things like that in our educational system um, that put those things in place that actually maintain um, that focus on why we're here in the first place. And, and also for me, that maintains a lot of my well-being, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think something that I've been reflecting on while you've been talking is that a lot of these interventions and just kind of changes to how teaching is being done, I could imagine them leading to kind of like improved mental health in students where, especially for me as a med student, I was going to different locations all the time. I didn't know the hospital. Like, like you were saying, you spend like a week being like, where am I? Who's what's going on? But like, with them learning the spaces that they're in, they get more comfortable, they get more confidence. Um, also bringing awareness to things like upstander training and like what kind of some of the results of those comments could lead to in the future, like awareness about burnout and imposter syndrome. And then also just how important it is to really continue to connect with your patients Um and with all of that, is that something I imagine the answer is yes, that you are tracking within these changes <laughs> um, or something that you have been thinking about as a group? Because um, I could see it having a really profound effect on just kind of the overall experience, but also just kind of that mental health piece in general. Yeah. So I mentioned that we survey the heck out of our students and we do do a survey at the end of every phase of the curriculum. So at the end of the pre-clerkship phase, at the end of the clerkship phase, and then later on to monitor things like, you know, their compassion scores, which one of the reasons that we moved to the LIC model is that students' compassion scores in an LIC model actually stay the same or go up in an LIC model. And I was really sad to hear. And again, these are, this is work by Jennifer Adams and her team. I was surprised to hear the national data, not our local data, that the lowest point in a med student's compassion level is actually at the end of their clinical clerkship year. Oh, wow. You are kind of, you know, maybe you could see that there's this burnout feeling, they're tired, their time isn't, our students tell us, my time isn't my own. I have to show up, you know, like stay as late as my resident wants me to stay. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, all of those kinds of things, they they lose some of that autonomy. Um, I don't know exactly know why the compassion scores are higher. Um, I think about altruism and I think about this commitment piece, which is exactly what we want to have. Um, but if I, if we can do something through a structural design that helps students maintain that or even grow it, then I think we're definitely winning um, for the for the long haul. Mm-hmm. I do think that the relationship with the preceptor and the students is really critical. Yeah. Um, and I and it and it's critical in both ways. If you were a med student doing a week of ID with me in the hospital and I had a bad day and was rushing to meetings and ignored you some of the time and you know, um, was short with a patient, for example, you'd have a pretty negative impression of me as a teacher in that, in that, through that experience. But if you saw me the next week and the next week and the next week, mm-hmm. and that one day or that couple of days was not at all consistent with who I was in the long run, you'd have a totally different impression of me. And if I took it one step further and on week two, I said, gosh, you know what, Lizzie, last week, I'm sorry, I was not my best self. 
I was really worried about stuff that was going on at home, or I was super rushed on this deadline that I had. I wish that I could have rewound that and shown you a better role modeling, but I'm focused on you today and you this week and on our patients. And I just wanted to share that with you. Like you would automatically change your to- your whole view of who I was um, as a doctor. At the same time, if you gave me this like all over the place presentation, you forgot to tell me the occupation of the person in the opening sentence, <laughs> and you had no idea the mechanism of action of the anti-staphylococcal drugs that I asked you, I might be, if it was a one-time thing, oh my gosh, this student, Lizzie, ugh, how, did, how did she get on my team? <laughs> but if I saw you instead, that day and the next day and the next week and the next week, and you came to clinic the next week and said, hey, you know, Dr. Z, last week when we were on inpatient, I was a little bit like stressed out and I'm sorry I didn't remember the mechanism of action. I put a note card together that's got all these, you know, anti-staphylococcal drugs. And I just wanted to show you that I was working on that. Um, I was like, okay, she's on her game. Or we would have a relationship where I could say, are you okay? Because you're usually you know, on your game, but I want to make sure you're okay. Mm -hmm. And you might be able to tell me, you know what, I'm not okay because I had a patient die in the emergency department, or um, I'm not sure my surgery um, attending recognized that, you know, I I knew the anatomy of this particular case and I was worried about that or, you know, whatever it was. So I think those relationships are super important and protective to us. And the way healthcare changed um, has influenced the way medical education needed to change. And I think that's the best alignment that we have here with some of those other things. We are trying to measure them. So that's a long answer to your shorter question. Mm-hmm. Um, they're hard to measure. Things like yeah. compassion, there are scales for those things. Compassion, curiosity, those are kind of sometimes hard to measure. Um, we do some reflective writing things to try to get that at that a little bit. Um, and I think as you're talking, we aren't doing this, but I'm thinking about faculty development ways to recognize it um, and to call it out specifically. Like I, we say describe what the student does. So like I had a med student when I was in Pittsburgh who we had a patient with pancreatitis and they also had a like infected pseudocyst or something. And so we were seeing them for ID and the patient really wanted to eat something. And I knew that she was actually probably going to move to comfort and I was like, you know, get her, can you get her a pudding? And he was like, what? The surgeons are going to like strangle me. I was like, <laughs> just a little pudding. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Could you get her just one pudding? And he, and he was like, well, okay, maybe. So I didn't see the patient with him at that time. I rounded in the evening to see the patient. And I said, oh, you know, whatever, so-and-so. Um, did you get anything to eat today? And she was like, uh, no. I won't get anything to eat. And I was like, oh, really? You know, did, did Jackson come by? Your medical student? And she was like, oh, I was like, it's okay. He's with me. You can tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, oh yes, I had a pudding. I'm like, oh, good. So, you know, like that example of having a conversation with the student about how they care for the patient and then having them follow through and doing it, describing that that's, who he was as a person um, and a and behavior and how much her, his patient liked him, cared, that felt cared for. Like that's an example that's really hard to measure, but that's compassion and patient centeredness yeah. and 
those kinds of things, right? Yeah. But as attendees, nobody trains me how to call that out, right? Yeah. I had another example of that, and I'm just thinking we need to do more development, is that I had a student um, who was presenting a patient to me on ID, and she said, Mr. So-and-so is a 79-year-old kidney bean farmer who has happens to have staph bacteremia. I see a lot of that. Um, and, and I know that she felt silly saying kidney bean farmer, but she also like played to the rules and she knew like that that was my expectation. I will have people a lot of times say, I know you like this stuff. I'm like, okay, that's how we're going to have to preface it. Fine. And so she said, she said, um, so we went in and we saw the patient and I started by saying kidney bean farming, like, tell me about that. And when we left the room of the patient, I, I could have just like kept on rolling, you know, to the assessment and plan. But I said, you know, I realized that you felt a little silly saying kidney bean farmer in your HPI. And then it might not be the way other attendings want you to present. I appreciate A, that you knew that, that I would like that. And so therefore did it. But I also want to reflect back and let you know how you made me a better doctor. Did you see how you sharing that information with me made me a better doctor for this patient? I connected with him in a scary time. And, you know, I'm going to have to tell him that he's going to have six weeks of IV antibiotics and he has a kidney bean farm to run. Like that's going to be yeah. tough news. Mm-hmm. But leading with the fact that I know about that is because of you. Um, and so I think, yeah, so maybe you could argue that could have just been in the social history, but honestly, you know, except that unless they have an FUO, I don't need to hear the whole social history in a med student yeah. presentation. But if you can throw that in, in the opening sentence, I'm good to go. Um, so I think there's a lot of little things we can do to keep celebrating those pieces of our patients that bring us a lot of joy um, and also make it clear to the students that we value some of the intangible things. Mm-hmm. Um I definitely had that experience as a medical student when people would say, oh, you have nice bedside manner or whatever. You connect with your patients. And I used to think like, oh, darn it. They don't think I'm smart because all doctors must be nice, right? (laughs) And then as you get further along in your training, you realize, you know, those connections are really important. It's what allows us to take good care of them because they tell us stuff. And if patients don't tell us stuff, we can't take care of them. Definitely. I love all of that so much. I'm thinking, can I re-enroll at CU Med School and just like go through this LIC model? I don't (laughs) want to redo residency again, though. (laughs) Um, Well, I genuinely think we could probably talk for another like four more hours because I love this conversation. Um, Maybe uh, season two, we'll have to have you come back on (laughs) if you'd be up for it. But uh, we don't want to be respectful of your time. So I was just wondering if you have any more last like parting thoughts for us for like, I guess, broadly changes that you think should be at the like front of the proverbial list of what needs to change in med ed going forward and things that we can kind of tackle, um, hopefully more imminently than later. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot of movement along the the push to competency-based education, um, which gets hung up in the logistics Mm -hmm. part. I think a lot of people agree we should advance people when they're supposed to advance and hold them back when they should learn some more and try to achieve that growth mindset. But we still are a very time-based system based on the way, for most places, there are some experiments that are happening that I think are really important. Um, But that requires a a coming together of a lot of organizations 
ACGME, AAMC, healthcare systems to try to figure that out. And I, I do think it will it'll happen. It's just going to be very, very slow. And so the way that if we can experiment more in those areas, I think um, that'll be good for everybody. Um, I, I love the curriculum that we have so far, but I also want to make sure that I remember the fact that I loved the curriculum that I went through also. And so healthcare is going to change. Mm-hmm. And we need to stay alert to how those changes need to be reflected in the way we teach people as well. Um, artificial intelligence is the big one that's coming in that space too. And I don't know that we're ready to to embrace it. Um, it, it gives me that last reminder, and then I'll stop chatting, is to say um, to learn from your learners. Um, our yeah. students are amazing. Our residents I will still be saying that residency program director was my favorite job. Um, though I, I do love to see medical students, um, but they teach me so, so much. Um, and they try things and question things. And people talk a lot about generational differences or generational challenges and um, our, our students and generations that are coming. And I even think about my own, you know, kids who were high school and, and a freshman in college, they're, they're gonna change things. And we need to, instead of um, pushing them down and saying they're a generation that doesn't know, pull them up and say, what can I learn from them along the way? And that's the real fun of being in an education space is that you get to be with people who are younger and smarter and bringing great ideas. Like the two of you. Oh, like That was a great <laughs> ending to the episode. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's a wrap. Check out our show notes and follow us on MedX and Instagram to get the most up-to-date information on what the Review Systems crew is up to. Shout out to our executive producer, Bijan Sadie and Whitney Gould for creating our music and graphics. With that, I'd say a 14-point Review of Systems is complete. Unless otherwise stated in the HPI. Move <laughs> out, Brussels sprout! Do not say that. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't you. like it? Later, skater. See you later, alligator. Uh, see you in a while, crocodile. Uh huh. That's uh, the only one I know. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this just became very unhinged. <laughs>